Richard Howard, who works out of the AWS London office, has interviewed a number of angel investors about the mistakes first-time founders should avoid, why CEOs should be open to mentorship, and more. Hi, my name is Richard Howard. I'm a startup business development manager at AWS, uh, doing a podcast series with investors and startup folk. With me today is Reshma Sohoni. She's a founding partner at SeedCamp. It's Europe's seed fund. Uh, a couple of their investments include TransferWise, UiPath, Revolut, and particularly prevalent uh, in today's world with uh, the pandemic going on, uh, Thriva, which can do antibody blood tests and other types of blood tests. Uh, Reshma, thank you very much for joining me. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. So for the people that are unfamiliar with SeedCamp, I'm sure everybody in the UK is, but if you could give a, a little bit of background on it, that would be great. Absolutely. And, and, and I think um, since I think you mentioned the audience is probably a lot of sort of founder community, I think, you know, definitely do your homework on different VCs and, and what they do do and what they don't do. And uh, I think learn about personalities too, which I think this podcast is, is a great way to, to do, uh, given some of the folks you've had before me and, and, and will do after me. So just on us, it, we are primarily focused on the European footprint, so European talent to go global. Uh, we will invest outside of Europe if, if, if there's sort of a European connection, but kind of 80-90% tends to be within uh, Israel to Ireland, the Nordics down, down south, every, everything in between. So that's geography. Our sizes of checks tend to be kind of 150K to 500K, usually for at least sort of a 5 to 7% ownership. So that gives you good guidance on our, our valuation expectations. We do pre-seed and seed, so anything pre-series A. And then the last big one is sort of sectors. We're extremely agnostic, very much software internet driven. So we will do a little bit of hardware, but it but it's more challenging for given the size of size of our checks. And we'll we'll do kind of clearly health tech, but not so much biotech, because again, it's it, they're capital hungry type type of companies and that's harder to do when when you're investing sure. the kind of stage of rounds and, and check sizes we are. But you know, nothing is really off limits. Um, but but wanted to just kind of go through what, what really the 90% of what we focus on is. No, that's awesome. You guys have been going since 2007. And I, I thought I was like an OG of the UK tech startup scene because I've been in it since 2012. And uh, to see you guys being around in 2007 is, is incredible. What kind of startup ecosystem was there in, in the UK and in Europe? And, and kind of how, were you, how receptive was Europe to, to SeedCamp back in the day? Definitely the OG for for sure. Like before before it at all got uh, got sexy and interesting, right? It was just a very small community of particularly, I would say, people with capital and then experience having actually uh, seen unicorns being either built, you know, by themselves or or been part of part of those journeys. Very small community, very concentrated in the UK and London particularly, and then a little bit sort of in, in France and, and Germany, but yeah, very, you know, very much in, in London. And I think in a way that helped us, to be honest, because it was smaller, it was easier to get us known across. Um, and in particularly, I think the few sort of people that were all hyper-connected 
in the kind of the amazing growth, you know, growth stories of business objects or I mean, Spotify was very young then as, as well, but Trade Doubler and, and some of those companies, right? So yeah, it was, and Skype and, and, and so forth. So it was a small group. It was very supportive from a standpoint of let's see what the heck you do, Seed Camp, and, and let's see if there are yep. founders to be unearthed. And I think particularly we got a ton of interest, a ton of support exactly from the founders we were trying to go after literally across the European footprint from day one, which was so unique too. I think back in the day, I think we, we think of a very, you know, deeply connected, more homogenized Europe today, but you know, that was so, uh, so much not the case back in 2007. But, you know, the first companies we invested into were from Romania, Slovenia, and then absolutely, you know, central London as as well. So we were amazed at the response. And clearly, uh, as we can see 12 years hence, you know, literally startups come from everywhere and can get to incredible scale on a global level. We just saw sort of peak you know, Peak Games getting acquired by Zynga yep. for nearly two billion, which is a Turkish gaming company. So, so yeah, there's there's you know loads of incredible examples of how things have changed so significantly in the last decade. For sure. But what was it in kind of two thousand and seven that you foresaw? I mean, this was relatively untouched territory. I imagine there was, you know, particularly in the UK, you know, cynicism and skepticism that, that anything could, could really come out of it. I'm not talking about from the startup community, maybe from the political community, maybe from the, the LP community. And obviously, like, you couldn't foresee this, but it was, you know, a year before the financial crisis hit. But what was it you were seeing, you know, in 2007 that you foresaw that you're like, there is going to be a big community here, there is going to be something that's going to take off and, and we're going to see campus going to be part of it. Yeah, and I think, um, and it, and it's not just sort of a, a feeling. I think you know, you guys are part of a great company that that has tons of data and analyzes everything. And we did the same, to be honest. Is we we looked at sort of the uh, the engineer concentration and university concentration across across Europe, and you know, we've sort of Saul particularly has talked a lot about these stats over the years. Is you had an incredible group of engineering talent, you know, just engineering talent coming out of Europe, but what it wasn't doing was necessarily startup its own startups they were often kind of the um the outsourced you know development teams and 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 sort of the the tech offices and and so forth so i think seeing that there's inherently incredible universities and therefore incredible engineering talent means you know if, if that's what you're focused on which we very much were on backing founders who built businesses with that kind of a background you knew it you had fertile ground to back folks and then second i think what you were seeing was analytically again kind of increasing numbers of of european companies you know become those global household names uh, as as mentioned sort of skype and and, and so forth so i think you had Capital saying, okay, there, there is something here. Um, maybe, maybe it's only in Sweden, maybe it's only in London, but obviously, you know, there, there was capital starting to get interested. And, you know, you, you can hear the American accent in, in my voice. I definitely saw a, a bunch of Americans, you know, coming over, setting up sort of funds and, and, and so forth. So clearly there was capital from the top end engineering talent from the bottom end. Then you think about corporates, kind of Google set up, Yahoo, Facebook, then then getting going, Amazon, and, uh, you know, later as, as well. But I think uh, starting to see sort of, again, that there would be business talent as well. 
starting to be built in a big way in, in Europe. And those are three critical sort of uh, ingredients to, to make, you know, multi-billion dollar businesses, big platform companies come alive. So we took kind of that, that data set, the, those analytics kind of behind it to put SeedCamp in, into place. So it wasn't just a, a sort of nice nice feel to to have. And then I think we were certainly helped, I think particularly in London with, you know, the mayor and the and the federal government sort of sitting all in all in London that it also got behind startup, scale up, every, everything kind of all, all, all together and policies help a lot. So I think, you know, particularly kind of EIS, SEIS have been transformational yeah. to get smart angel money investing back into back into technology just yeah, so for people that uh, are unaware of what the eis and the seis are for you know, maybe international audiences it's basically tax breaks for for angel investors correct and uh i mean i think there were there were sort of some abuse of it kind of in other industries and and the government was really smart to make them very targeted to this risky asset you know risky class of deep technology technology in, in general so very smart policy moves yeah, I so on the EIS SEIS point, basically for I think it's SEIS is up to you as a startup can raise up to two hundred fifty thousand pounds that's SEIS eligible, and that means that if I as an angel investor invest in you, I get a tax rebate basically of fifty percent of the amount that I've invested. EIS you can raise slightly more, but I think the rebate is around thirty yeah. percent. So I've been in in startups since twenty twelve. Uh, only in the last couple of years have I ever done any have I done any actual angel investments, and I've made you know use of SIS and EIS, and it's made it much more palatable and much easier for me to be able to to do it and kind of explain to my wife why I'm putting money into these startups with people that she's never heard of and making things that she's also never heard of. But yeah, um, awesome. So I'm going to read to you a quote from an interview you did back in in twenty ten. And it's around about kind of like how founders think. So it's um, this is kind of for you. So when we when we um, assuming you're talking about SeedCap, look so closely at founders, we look at the way they think, and that goes into how do they think about the market and what size of market, how do they think about their own opportunity and their own approach to the market. You know, you're you're meeting with a lot of founders. You're you're kind of uh, assessing them and how they think. So so what is in your view? Or how do the best founders, the best entrepreneurs think? That's a yeah, it's a great question. And I think um ten years on, it's you know, very much is still so critical and, and especially the stage we're coming in. And I, I think that especially the last ten years, the other quality I would I would add is sort of perseverance, grit, kind of that that hustle as as well. But it, it, it yeah. does go back to, I think, as you said, sort of how founders think. I mean, we use our time when we're meeting with with founders to really essentially push on that quite quite a lot is one of the things we look at is founder market fit is why the these particular founder or founders for this particular problem and, and and market so that you know i think digging into those questions of what made you want to start this what's the problem you saw why you know what about your background means you have a competitive advantage here that allows you to see exactly how they think because they're communicating as well about their own journey of you know identifying and and wanting to solve these problems and then we also go, you know, deep on sort of why did you bring the team you brought together and, and what, you know, what about the different aspects of, if there is a team, what about the different aspects of the different people? Or if you don't have a team, what will you look for as the first kind of three, you know, hires or three early people to, to bring on? Again, same, gives us a lot of insight on how they're approaching and where we've seen, you know, a pattern on, on, on successful founders and companies on that sort of recruiting side, on that founder market fit problem. And the third, very 
very crucially is on sort of understanding the go-to-market and you know monetization and how how will they whether it's a business-to-business enterprise, a B2B SaaS, or a consumer product, what are the different ways that they will attack go-to-market, how cleverly they, they think about it, what are the channels, what are the partnerships, what are the ways to take advantage of the marketing tools out there. So that's a lot of, and, and I think maybe in a way, the technology, you know, the, the more hardcore technology bit is not a, not a given, I would say, but I mean, I think we can dig into that often seeing the people's backgrounds. And I think depending on kind of whether tech is, is itself a differentiator for whatever the whatever the business being built will go more heavily on that or or not if it's more internet as a distribution without necessarily you know deep tech as such but so yeah so that's a lot of the questions when we spend our time through our sort of pre-seed process or, or seed process that we really drill down and we use our experience and finally judgment really to make our own call on whether those sets of answers get us really excited or leave us with a lot more questions than answers. Sure. Not just kind of in the way people are thinking about go to market and all that stuff. In the kind of 13 years that you've, um, since you founded SeedCamp, have your expectations, even though you're, you know, you're still investing at the early stage, have your expectations of where a company should be by the time that they are pitching to you changed? Because, you know, there's so much more, you know, like not to kind of toot the horn of the, the company that pays me, but, you know, there's AWS there. So they don't have to do a lot of, you know, uh, expenses with, with servers and they can set up and create an MVP incredibly quickly. There's so much content out there around, you know, getting alpha beta customers. There's so many more willing kind of early adopters. Um, for different kinds of products. So do you have higher expectations of where a company should be when they're coming to pitch for money now? Or is it, you know, pre-product or, you know, kind of post-idea, that's still fine? Yeah, great question. I think just the nature of where we operate being that pre-series A and uh, and therefore, you know, at seed and pre-seed. I mean, definitely at seed, we want to see more. And we added doing seed investing in 2014, actually. So uh, because I think exactly to the nature of what you said is there's a lot you can build with very little money. And some founders and companies were just skipping the whole pre-seed and, and going to a seed round. So, so yes, our expectations are different depending on whether it's pre-seed or, or seed. And actually, one of the questions we do ask is, you know, how long have you been working on this? And, and what's been the progress between sort of kernel of idea to, to you know, sitting in the room or virtual room these days with us yeah, is uh, is really pushing on uh, this acceleration, the speed at which they've been able to build the num- you know number of solutions, and we we absolutely sort of have relevant markers to again what how kind of deep R and D that was required for first state you know set business or if it was more plug and play and that it's a more user experience or or that layer and and therefore you know what are the what are sort of the progress points they've made i think just on your general comment of things around kind of starting up absolutely i mean we we could we always talk about costs to startup having diminished quite a lot and then so i think particularly in kind of the world of consumer and saas it is an execution game and a, and a go-to-market game than it is that is fundamentally kind of tech infrastructure and, and having that as a as a moat. So a lot of our questioning and, and push is is around seeing the brilliance in that go-to-market. And uh, you know, I think if you see sort of like 
the food delivery space, the mobility space, a, a lot of these different different areas. So much money has gone into so many different startups, roughly attacking the same, you know, same use use case with roughly the same solution. And then it becomes a real kind of marketing money yeah. game. And as an investor, you have to be conscious of what game you're entering uh, down with downstream, you know, downstream progress and, and capital. So we, we do keep that in mind quite a lot. For sure. So you you mentioned uh, competition there, and I think that's something that has probably definitely changed since since two thousand seven, even since twenty twelve. I mean, you know, I was at Uber in twenty twelve, and we we're launching London, and we were concerned about Halo. They were there before us, black taxis, but you know, slightly different different world. But there was you know there was no Lyft, or there was no Diddy in in China. There was there was you know there was nothing. And I think nowadays, if you launch an idea and it has or you launch a startup and it has traction in your whole market, there's going to be competitors really really quickly. So one of the things I wanted to ask you was how you think about competitors, because, you know, you're an investor in, in Revolut, for example, and, you know, there's a um, challenger bank. And I know it does a lot of other stuff, but, you know, at its core, it's a challenger bank. And then there's other companies like that, particularly in the UK, you know, you look at Monzo, you look at Starling Bank. So where you see that a space might be crowded or that the barriers to entry are low enough that it might get crowded, how do you kind of decide which, like, which one's going to be the winner and where you're going to put your money, if at all? Yes. And and look, I think that's really hard to do at our stage, to be honest, is is uh, because, you know, I think we do invest at that kind of that often quite early in the in the market spaces as well. So there aren't noticeable competitors kind of popping, you know, popping up, whether regionally in Europe or, or even globally. So I think it's, it becomes an even more challenging thing at our stage. I think, therefore, we pay a lot of attention to this element of fundraising capability and look at founders, you know, that are going to, going to go after what will likely become very competitive spaces because, you know, people will see that opportunity and, and see see how big those markets are and, and, and will come in is what is the capability of the founders? What What is the, I think the differentiation becomes even more important. It's like competitive differentiation, whether it's on product, on, you know, founder, how fast they iterate, all of that ultimately to say, you know, who can they raise from? What kind of, you know, capital is a moat, unfortunately, is a thing. And, and so, you know, yeah. you know, can that be a factor in, in how they will win? That's one. Let's park that. But I think otherwise, what we are looking at is, you know, even if we make this investment in a challenger bank or in a food tech business or, or, or whatnot, is, is the market just large enough that frankly, you can have two, three, five, you know, players, um, not probably exactly offering the same thing. I mean, if you look, Monzo, Starling, Revolut, TransferWise, um, another one of ours, they, they do something different, right? And is can a market sort of sustain several players because it's just so large? And then the other element is, is it currently dominated by incumbent and therefore really for all of those the competition is the incumbent rather than it is each of them and i think when it's much 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 bigger then i think that that's a problem but i think it's not a problem that uh that impacts us probably at, at that point to be honest um so so we look at that kind of tam the target addressable market and yeah. is, is incumbent really the main com- competition so that actually having two or three other players benefits you because then, you know, the whole market kind of uh, wakes up to to the disruption. Um, but again, ultimately, it, it boils down to those those founders, the, the, the people is, is, you know, can you see them if you look around at the company 10 years from now? 
you know, will they will they be there? And can you see them kind of uh, running that ship in in ten years? Yeah, no, I think I think that's great. I think you know, it's it kind of comes down to to the earlier question around how do founders think? And if you, as someone who's been in this market, I mean, you know, only at Seed Camp for thirteen years, but there was time before that I have mentioned. But you know, you were at Three I, and I even did a little digging, and and you know, you were at a SoftBank joint venture back in two thousand. So you know, you've been around startups a long time, and if if someone like you has probably seen and met thousands of founders decide to make an investment you're probably pretty sure that other invest you know should this startup continue to build and, and be successful and hit its milestones that you know this founder is going to be able to raise money from other investors with you know kind of series a series b size pockets exactly i mean and and i and i hope uh, i hope yeah that it, that's our that's our main job you know at the end at the end of the day stage we are at and and what we can bring to the table for for our founders and 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 helping with all the elements around it that's going to get them in that position so yeah that's right yeah awesome um so you know you've been around like i said um is it 2000 so it was 2000 i saw in the interview that you did a joint venture with with softbank um, I think it was in India, right? Well, at, yeah. So SoftBank and News Corp actually had a okay. joint venture called eVentures, and they were spread. There were multiple of them. I think it, it, it was visionary. There was I was at the eVentures India part, and we were investing in India and and the US, uh, kind of India as a market, and also Indian companies that wanted to go global. But there was an eVentures in Australia and Korea and and and, and the UK and and so forth. So yeah. It was an incredible experience. Yeah, and so was was that when you started your journey into into startups, or was it was there something previous to that? No, that's that's it. That's exactly right. Um, I uh, and, and it was again very early stage investing, which is yeah. what you know. I, I fell in love with that, and clearly have, have continued. One of the companies I was involved with at the time, literally like putting their marketing plan together, talking about logos and colors. A company yeah. called Make My Trip, which was one of the first Indian companies to go public on the U.S. exchange. So you know, really, really proud of that one. And but but yeah, that's that's absolutely where I got that experience. I've been in investment banking right before that in M&A, but for sure that's more kind of uh, scale-up companies that were getting acquired by by larger players. So eVentures was my start in the really early stage. So so for 20 years you've been in the, the kind of early stage, really early stage. Is there a like is there like an inflection point or like a kind of a signal uh, in the stock companies uh, you've invested in where you can be like that one's going to be successful. I can tell. You know this isn't like oh, I've just invested and I I truly believe in you. This is like they've hit some kind of milestone or marker or something like that. Is there like a common thing across startups where you can be like, now I know they're going to be successful. I think, um, yeah. And we, we, we spent, I think as you do kind of 12 years in, you spend time on looking back and, uh, and, and yeah. analyzing that. I think I would say generally, you know, yes, yes, there is. And we've actually just run some of these numbers and it's sort of between rounds are called whatever they're called, but between kind of round, two and three. So I guess you would say it's really between that A and B round where, or, where you're like, yep, this is, you know, this is absolutely going to be huge. And of course there may still be, you know, points at which um, things turn or, or go badly, but, but yeah, I think that's often where we see the hockey stick really coming alive. Well, you know, everything sort of the, the journalists are talking about it. Your friends start talking about it. The, the, the capital starts to, you know, inbound into you versus us outbounding to say, hey, would you like to meet with company so-and-so? They're raising their seed. They're raising their A. You know, the B money starts to really kind of say, oh, would you be able to introduce me to the, your company X, X or Y? So it, so it does happen. And I would say a lot of it 
for sure has to do with product. Okay. And you guys are masters of this from AWS, but also the Amazon angle, right? Is uh, is those removing those friction points and Union Square put, put up a, a great post. Uh, it's called the butter thesis. And, and, uh, and, and I think that's where, yeah, that product just is, is that butter experience of, you know, it's smooth, everything about it kind of, uh, it gives you that delight, whatever the product is, it gives you that delight. And, and, and that's where, you know, it's like, this is, this is magic, right? And sometimes you can see it earlier kind of at seed or, or or series a but more often in that kind of round two round three time frame you're like this is explosive i mean i would definitely say like if you look at you know transferwise's product it's of course evolved but actually it's really similar to what they started with you look at airbnb and you know of course there's more slickness there's improvement but really the elements of it and critical for them, for example, was photography of the yeah. actual places. You know, that was there from a very early, early point. So I don't think in our experience, any of our companies have dramatically changed their product where it went from shit to great. <laughs> there were always kernels of greatness there in the product. Okay. And, and then it got even slicker, got evolved, or, you know, just it just sort of hit the, hit the right nerve with, with users. Perfect. And so when you have, you know, you've invested in a startup, they're at that very early seeds camp stage, and maybe you are probably the most seasoned uh, investor advisor that they have. Is that what you're telling them to focus on? Like, you know, focus on the product. I, I'm thinking more kind of B2B here. Your product will lead to more customers, which will lead to, you know, less churn, which will lead to, you know, more growth, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it's, it is amazing what a what a good product you know what it will forgive right what users will forgive and so yeah, um, yeah it, for sure we 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 spend a lot of uh, time and energy on that and I think particularly you know for the listeners in those early days is talking to users is is really talking to real human beings customers users what wh- whatever it is and not relying on you know desk desk research and uh, and and feel good feel good interviews as, as such, but actually whatever you have with your product to get people kind of playing with it, using it, fe- feeding, you know, feeding back on it. So we, uh, we spent a lot of, a lot of energy on that. And, and also I think, you know, brand and the story and, and, and it all, it all sorts ties together with, with that sort of storytelling product being product and actual customer chats and interviews being a critical part. I mean, I, I actually said it to the other, to a company the other day is like, when if you can have that in your DNA and your d- discipline, it's it's so meaningful and a competitive differentiator because you know this is the easiest time when you are going to have to be able to talk to humans versus uh, when you've got that million users or, or ten thousand customers or whatever it is, is it gets harder to pick up the phone and, and talk to your users. So so we do emphasize that a lot in the early getting to product market fit. Yeah, I think that's that's so critical. And one of the things that I've kind of in turn, particularly at Amazon, is you know Amazon has I think, fourteen leadership principles, and one of them, kind of the top one, is customer obsession. And nothing gets done, nothing gets built uh, without us thinking kind of backwards from the customer. You know, how is this going to be good for the customer? How how is this going to delight customers? Why are we doing this for the customers? It's not that we're doing it for us. It's not that we're doing it to look good. It's that we're doing it, um, you know, for our customers. And that's something, you know, when I was uh, building my startup, I wasn't that, I wasn't focused enough on. And, you know, I think you're absolutely right. You know, speak to as many, as much customer, as many customers as possible. And because as an entrepreneur, particularly, 
you're going to be pretty stubborn about the idea that you've had and that have lived with and it's in your head in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And it's going to take a few, at least a few conversations with actual potential users to get you to kind of change your opinion. You know, entrepreneurs tend to be stubborn beasts. Yeah. And, and I'll give you, I mean, I'll give you a counter example to that because I was at Vodafone for a few years and although an incredible experience sort of taking different pricing and, and marketing strategy across our, our different markets and footprints, one of the reasons I, I left after kind of three plus years was, and, and this happens at corporate level, right? And, and this is this is why there are opportunities to disrupt and, and break through is I know a lot of our energies were, were focused on tweaking tweaking pricing for revenue and tweak you know tweaking these things for revenue and making things you know difficult for for users to understand what what actually was hype happening with pricing and different packages and and, and things yeah. and kind of like you're like really that that's what I'm doing here you know is uh rather than the you know ethos today of like transparency and over communicate and and make sure you know your users really get what right fit for them and understand what it what it is and and it was really disturbing to to you know work towards a revenue goal rather than the the customer delight goal and you know you can kind of see what's happened to, to telecom in, in Europe and I, I think a lot of different telecom operators were you know were practicing that I think continue to practice that so yeah I think the problem with telecoms is it's so hard to disrupt you know because of the the cost of the infrastructure there it's you know physical hardware yeah yeah but you know so they sit on you know I guess oligopoly you know wherever you look at the US as well with not just telecoms but kind of like cable TV and it's kind of split up by regions and you know kind of notorious for bad customer service and 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 all that stuff and it's just where there's not an oligopoly because of the real kind of hardware infrastructure costs it's really difficult to break and they can kind of yeah. fiddle on the margins and say oh you know we'll put prices up you know 10p today we'll see what happens exactly exactly but yeah you know 100 when you're building a startup talk to as many customers as possible have the customer kind of at the forefront of your mind and allow those conversations and, and how customers are using your product to really kind of change as an entrepreneur if you need to change, you know, change your preconceptions about what kind of company you're building, because uh, being stubborn in the face of the market will just lead to failure. Exactly. So um, I listened to a podcast that you did. I think it was in, in December, kind of pre-pandemic, and you were talking about Seed Camp uh, in particular, and that you guys, you know, realistically, you're looking to a hundred x or a thousand x your money. Yeah. Do you think that founders really understand these economics? And, and you, do you ever tell founders that come to you and say, you know, they're, they're pitching a product, they're pitching a startup. Do you ever say, you know, you guys shouldn't be raising VC money because, you know, you can build an amazing business, but, you, you know, VC money, you're going to, it's going to burn you out and you're going to try and grow too fast. But, you know, you could be a millionaire building, you know, what we class as, you know, lifestyle business with a loan from the bank and make it profitable. And you, you should be VC money. A lot, to be honest, a lot. Um, just because I think we also see, and especially in a pre-seed moment is a really interesting moment where, you know, you either start to go down that VC path or, or you don't, right? And, and you can still take VC money later down, down the road, but it is a, it is a sort of fork in the, fork in the road. And we, we do talk about that a lot. You know, founders really appreciate sort of the, again, the honesty of us saying, you know, sitting here, having, having kind of gone through this chat with you guys, founder X is we, us, just based on hearing and on our experience, we can't see the target, you know, the, the TAM being large enough, your way of approaching it, uh, even if you'd capture 100% of, of that, right, which nobody nobody ever does. And and so I think walking, breaking that down, walking through that journey, we do have that conversation a fair bit. And I think it's really appreciated because I think 
in the olden days, I think it was just a more, don't think this can be big enough. Well, what does that mean? And so, you know, we always, and, and I think there's, there's so much more kind of great write-ups on, on this sort of stuff out there that, you know, again, audience, please be, please be reading those things is, is the economics of a market and you as a startup attacking that. And then the economics as a, as a fund investing a hundred to 500 K ticket you know, in, in a company two to 10 million in valuation as, as we tend to do is if it's two or if it's 10, what is the, the multiples it's going to be for our fund of 60, 70 million for you to be a key part of, you know, re- returning that. And, and I've said sort of, again, when you're doing your homework on funds, understand what that is. Cause for seed camp, you can't even be a 10x like you as a company can't even be 10x of our, the investment we put into you um, because max kind of, over time, we put a, a couple of million or, or, or so into a company. So 10x wouldn't even return, you know, nearly just about a third of our of our fund. Yeah. And so that's why we need that 100x and, and thousand would, would be amazing, right? Uh, so so it's it's really digging in, understanding those economics. And I'll say what a big difference between a second time entrepreneur who has raised some money in the past and that first time entrepreneur. Those second time entrepreneurs really, really get that. I mean, I think they, because they live it, you know, they live through it in a good way, hopefully for most of them, sometimes in a bad way of, of their previous startup journey on that kind of VC highway treadmill, you can say. And yeah, it, the difference is incredible for those. And, and you know, that's why I think a lot of venture capital does find it easier to invest in, in repeat operators or founders is some of the, some of that core kind of appreciation is already there, right? And lessons learned. But uh, I think you do yourselves a lot of favor by understanding this as founders and then picking the right investors who are who are a good fit for you. Yeah. You know, I th- what you mentioned there about kind of repeat founders, it's, it's not just that they, they understand the, the economics or, or, or kind of the investors. It's, you know, they have the scar tissue from the mistakes that they made with Startup One and they know not to repeat those mistakes. They'll make new mistakes, but you know they should have a little bit of, of kind of understanding and, and bounce back ability, for lack of a better term, to kind of keep the, the next startup on track. The last question I'm going to ask kind of around specific startup stuff. You know, you started in 2007. It was a very, very, very small ecosystem. You've been kind of instrumental in funding some of the companies that have grown that, that ecosystem, you know, Revolut, TransferWise, UiPath in particular. So going forward, when you look kind of towards the next post-pandemic, of course, when everything is back to normal, when you look towards you know what companies and, and founders you're going to invest in the next five years, do you expect to invest in a lot of kind of you know I was employee five or ten or fifteen at you know this incredibly large uh, European startup uh, versus brand new first-time founders, or are you still going to try and make as many investments in first-time founders as you can? Yeah, uh, excellent question. I mean, I think um, I think a, a mix, really. So, and and that's why we broadened our, our strategy from pre-seed to seed is because often the the second time founders or, or say they've been operators, you know, at an Uber or, or AWS or, or, or whatnot, are often able to skip that pre-seed stage and go to go to seed, and we didn't want to miss those, especially I think our own second time entrepreneurs like um, Emmy Gall at, at Ezra, or we do pay a lot of attention in our and get close to the different kind of operators at our companies. And we've backed, I think, already two folks that's le- that have left TransferWise, a couple of folks that have left Uberview. And so, so yeah, and, and Revolut, actually, we just backed um, in Stealth Company coming out of Revolut. So, you know, we, we will do that. But we didn't get here by backing repeat sort of founders or, you know, well-networked entrepreneurs. We got to where we are with those 
fresh, completely first time new entrepreneurs. And so pre-seed, you know, is is a big part of what we do and, and helping us unearth kind of those folks. So it's funny because LPs asked us like, why don't you just do the seed stuff, you know? <laughs> and I said, yeah. pre-seed is a feature, not a bug to our, to our model is first time entrepreneurs are a feature, not a, not a, not a bug. So, I mean, hop in is a great story. It's just been skyrocketing to hold sort of bigger events, conferences uh, on online the last few you know weeks and months. Again, totally unknown first time founder, right? So it's just, yeah, there's a lot of magic in that. So we, we're not going to give up what really has been a massive part of our identity and success story. Okay, so I'm going to let you go in two minutes. You have a couple of very quick questions. Everybody is sharing the things that they, you know, they watched and they're reading and whatever to, to kind of get through the pandemic. Um, but I don't care about that. What what would you avoid? Like, what did you watch that was terrible, or what have you read that was rubbish that you want everybody else to avoid? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, that's such a hard question. I I honestly. <laughs> Maybe I'm just too much of an optimist. Like the things I've I've watched or, or read, I'm I'm pretty like excited <laughs> excited about. <laughs> Actually, I th- I do find you know you all know Hariri. I think I say his name last name wrong all the time, but uh, Sapiens and Homo Deus particularly is just sort of fascinating. Kind of that that whole book on on what the future could potentially be, and I think our role in you know helping shape it in a good way because a lot of sort of the evolution of humans or sapiens you know it's going to happen and so it's scary and yet an, an opportunity as well so I, I recommend that highly i've been reading leonardo da vinci a book on him kind of recently again recommend that so highly kind of thinking about the 15th century or edge of the 15th 16th century and you know amazing what what sort of he did as an individual so so yeah um maybe more positive recommendations sorry <laughs> No, no, no uh, real negative. You're too positively American, you know, 20 years or 13 years in the UK is not kind of ground you down yet. To be like, I, I always say about that, I say, look, I, I loved Sapiens. I thought it was great. I was less uh, impressed with, with Homo Deus. If I'm like, this is just purely personal opinion. I thought a lot of it was kind of repetition of, of Sapiens. Mm. And I, I thought it, it was a little bit more almost dystopian in its outlook. Yeah, but you know, read it during the pandemic. It's like freaking. <laughs> I would say if you read it to you, you'd be like, "What is this?" You know. <laughs> but- yeah, I think that's what I did. I I read it. Straight, I think I read it straight after Sapiens. And Sapiens, I loved, and I thought it was great, and I thought it was really yeah. interesting. Um, and then I read Homo Deus, and I was like, a lot of this, like, I think it was a sorry, yeah, Homo Deus was repeating a lot of stuff that was in Sapiens, which is great if if you'd had a lot of space between the two books. Yes. And then I thought it was, you know, a little bit dystopian, but probably should read it again and be like, oh, shit, he was he was underselling it. Yeah, yeah. No, I think, I think that's right. The first kind of third of the book, I'm like, what is this? I've read this, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so they persevere and you're like, oh, wow, this is kind of, yeah. <laughs> okay, so so seeing as you you won't give me like an, an, an anti-recommendation, what is, what is the best thing you've watched in the pandemic? Yeah, too much, far, far too much uh, Amazon Prime. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> that is a native ad, folks. You know, so it, it probably doesn't come as a surprise, but big sci-fi person. So okay. just uh, just watching a lot of different shows, whether on, on Netflix or, or Amazon Prime, sci-fi and uh, Never Have I Ever, which is about this Indian girl at an American school. Literally, I'm like, they lifted my life story. I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> so, so some good things for, for a good laugh as well. I mean, I, I would just say, you know, I think on the negative side is... And I, 
probably actually I woke up today with with some of this is I was just way too much on kind of CNN and and and, and other yeah. things last night. <laughs> And so it's funny, actually, the reality TV today, if you want to call social media that, is so much more entertaining than I think what is available on, on Amazon and, and Netflix, which is highly scary and, and definitely got me down over the last 24 hours um, because this, this, you know, media shows so much, so much of the shocking uh, that yeah. TV shocks you no more, actually. So, yeah. Yeah, so I'm not going to end like the downer note, uh, or try not to. If you like sci-fi, have you watched Dark on Netflix? Not yet. Oh, it's amazing! It is so good. And then on Amazon Prime, I don't know if you've watched Upload yet. Not yet. So good I suggestion. Like it. It, was, it, it was like it's 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 kind of light but but fun. But like Dark is, um, and I, I think I'll repeat this every single podcast when everybody makes, makes a recommendation because like my favorite show now is incredible. Do not care about the subtitles. It's they're you know half inch uh hurdle to jump over uh, but it's it's really really good yeah that's super cool but i mean i thought by the way what you guys did with picard it was like beautiful i just yeah. loved everything about it i really like picard and not to you know spoiler the ending i wish he died i wish there were some real stakes i wish they'd left him dead <laughs> never <laughs> i know it was all just a bit too perfect wasn't it at the end just a bit too yeah, perfect I, I enjoyed the show. I was a fan of, of uh, The Next Generation. As nobody who listens to this will be surprised. And then I thought, you know, they've got him. And, it's, and he's, it's kind of leading to He had, like, you know, to watch it. But, you know, he doesn't die in the end. Shocker. I feel, I feel like there should be, you know, there, if you want to have real emotional stakes, you have to, that has to be it, right? <laughs> and then the final question I have before you go, because I'm assuming that was like a, a, a your next meeting is, is starting to pop up. Who in the startup ecosystem, particularly the UK ecosystem, if, if we can kind of keep it to, to, to that, uh, would you like to hear interviewed on a podcast like this? Great question. Oh gosh, that's so so unfair. <laughs> there are so many great people. You know what? Azim, I think, would be awesome. He does, you know, his exponential view podcast. So he's he's the questioner in that sense. And so I think I, I, I nominate him because uh, okay. he's one of the most brilliant people I have met, and uh, and a good friend. And so he's 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 great. He's great. Okay, awesome. I will I'll reach out to Azim and say that you have recommended it. Rachel Sohoni, thank you so much for, for joining me on the AWS Startup Podcast. Thank you, Richard. Thanks for listening. Do us a favor and leave us a review. And if you know someone who we should have on the show, or maybe it's you, reach out to us at startupstories at amazon.com. And subscribe to AWS Startup Stories wherever you get your podcasts.